Welcome to AEM Early Access, a podcast of the Society for Academic Emergency Medicine and the Academic Emergency Medicine Journal. I'm Dr. Gita Pensa, and here's what we've got for you today. Dizziness is responsible for about 5% of emergency department visits, and although most of these cases will arise from a benign etiology, some do have serious underlying causes. Missed serious underlying causes, such as stroke, can lead to death and disability, as well as litigation for the care team involved. Today we're talking about a new research letter in AEM entitled Dizziness as a Missed Symptom of Central Nervous System Pathology, a Review of Malpractice Cases. Lead author Summer Gaith is here to discuss it with us. Summer Gaith is an MD-JD candidate at Mayo Clinic Alex School of Medicine in Arizona and Arizona State University College of Law. At the time of this interview, she'd completed law school and is beginning her third year of medical training. She's an aspiring emergency medicine physician and is passionate about utilizing health law and policy to improve patient health and outcomes. Don't forget to read the full text of this article, available open access from the publisher for a limited time. Summer Gaith, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thank you for having me. So I read uh, I read this paper with a great deal of interest. I am an emergency physician speaking to someone who's not an emergency physician, and I feel obliged to tell you how difficult it is to assess patients who are coming into the emergency department with dizziness. And I'm also someone who spent uh, myself a lot of years involved in litigation involving a neurologic diagnosis masquerading as something else. Um, And I have a professional interest in malpractice litigation. So uh, the topic of this paper was of great interest to me. I would love to hear your viewpoint as an emergency physician. I, I think you have such a unique standpoint being someone who addresses these issues and being involved in such a lawsuit. Well, yeah, an interesting. So two two jury trials. I did win both of them, but um, it was very difficult um, trying to explain to a a jury of not physicians um, in a room of attorneys who didn't understand medicine. Uh, the nuances involved in mm-hmm. taking care of patients with certain complaints in the emergency department, and that's I think what we're going to get into um, right now. We're going to talk about the presentation of dizziness. And how sometimes there is a serious neurologic diagnosis lurking in there, but sometimes it's actually really hard to ferret that out. Um, And so your paper starts with some facts that are very interesting. Um, You note that less than 5% of cases presenting to the ED are for dizziness, because I swear it feels like more. Um, (laughs) And although um, most of those cases have a benign etiology, about 15% of those will have a more serious underlying cause. And you note that um, approximately 10% of strokes are missed on their first presentation to the ED and that patients who present with dizziness are the most likely to be misdiagnosed. And so this is quite unnerving on its face. Yeah. And I think that's really what motivated this study. Like, though it may be less than 5% of patients, it's still millions of patients who present to the ED with dizziness. And like you said, it's really difficult for physicians to assess a patient who presents with dizziness to the ED, and that can be contributing to the higher stroke misdiagnosis rates. Right. And there's all sorts of pressures. I mean, we could MRI everyone that walked through the door, and that would probably 
help us catch more of these diagnoses, but that is not practical. But that's not the crux of what we're getting into today. So we're going to try and learn something from cases that actually went to litigation um, and seeing if there's anything that can inform our care from there. So you go on to tell us then that in litigation involving strokes, emergency physicians are the most likely specialists to be named in malpractice suits more often than neurologists, neurosurgeons, interventional radiologists, and radiologists combined. Uh, yikes. So <laughs> though the natural instinct is for us to just be frightened by the statistic, uh, perhaps there is some value to thinking about this a little deeper. So what was the, your overall goal for this investigation? So our overall goal was to, we wanted to better understand how these malpractice lawsuits associated with the central nervous system pathology um, and really capture the clinical picture and legal outcomes that led to the lawsuits and that came out of the lawsuits and what really were the risk factors that that led to a finding of liability. Okay. So this was an observational study of lawsuits related to patients who presented to the ED with dizziness or similar symptoms and then were subsequently diagnosed with a central nervous system cause. So uh, can you tell us a little bit about your design and methods? Yeah, of course. So we utilize Westlaw, which is just a legal database, and it contains tens of thousands of state and federal legal cases. Within the jury verdicts and settlements database portion of Westlaw, we search from cases um, starting from 1970 through August 2022 with search terms of medical malpractice and various words to describe dizziness like lightheaded, unsteady, gait, vertigo, and a couple more. And we're really trying to tease out all the malpractice cases related to dizziness. Mm -hmm. We also um, excluded any duplicate cases any cases not related to the central nervous system and any non-medical cases and abstracted data such as demographics, clinical data, and the legal information. Okay. So you started off with 570 cases in your initial search, and then you whittled that down to 69 that met all of your inclusion criteria. So these occurred between 1985 and 2016 in 24 states. So first... Mm -hmm. What did you find regarding um, the mean age of the patient slash plaintiff and, um, and other demographics? So regarding age, we found that the median age of patients was 45 years and a little bit over half of the cases involved male patients. And most of the alleged error actually occurred in the emergency department. This was about 40 percent. And that was followed by primary care setting, the hospital, and there was very scattered cases across neurology offices, specialty clinics, and urgent cares. Okay. And I'm guessing that um, it still bears out which specialties were most often named. Um, and how often were trainees or mid-level providers named? So as you probably guess, it's emergency medicine. That's the most common specialty that was targeted by these lawsuits. Mm -hmm. Um, and in regard to legal, in regard to trainees and mid-level providers, four of the cases involved a trainee, which we defined as medical student, resident, or fellow, um, and five cases involved a nurse practitioner or a physician assistant. Okay, this is out of the sixty-nine. So okay, yes. So yes. tell us what you can about the presentation of dizziness in these cases uh, and your outcomes. So we actually found a wide array of symptoms presented in these cases. In addition to dizziness, patients experienced symptoms of headache, nausea, vomiting, 
unilateral weakness, unilateral numbness, speech difficulties, slurred speech, and neck pain. And most of these patients actually demonstrated at least two or more of these, and some demonstrated three or more or four or more. Um, and we also looked at the time between the symptom onset and the presentation to the ED or whatever healthcare setting they came to. And although it wasn't reported in all of the cases, we actually found that a majority were, were greater than 24 hours. Well, that's kind of interesting because it starts to, you know, limit what could be done in many of those years um, of those cases. And it's also interesting to note that a lot of these cases were dizziness plus something else. Yeah. Yeah. So that that's something that maybe we can take away from this is that when it is dizziness plus something else, that's when we're really supposed to sit up and, and pay attention. So um, what about the medical outcomes? So the medical outcomes were broken down into death, permanent disability, and temporary disability. And from the 69 cases, we found that 12 patients had died, while 54 claimed permanent disability and three temporary disability. Um, we looked at the most common final diagnosis of these patients as well, and we found that a little bit over half were stroke, followed by neoplasm, followed by some sort of bleed, and then an infectious etiology. How about the legal outcomes in these cases? Of the 69 cases, we actually found that 64 of them alleged missed or delayed diagnosis, uh, 45 alleged failure to treat, 23 alleged failure to get a neurology consult. We found that 21 alleged failure to get an MRI specifically, uh, 14 alleged misreading of radiology scans. And then about seven or seven, actually, alleged failure to get a CT. And then three were related to procedural complications. Um, and then what about the ultimate outcomes of those cases? So the ultimate outcomes, we found that 37 of the 69 cases resolved with no findings of negligence against the physician, while 20 mm -hmm. resulted in a finding of negligence and 12 were settled. Okay. That's actually a pretty hefty amount of cases where there was negligence deemed because, you know, overall, when you look at numbers of physicians going to trial, the physician usually wins six out of seven times. So this seems like a pretty, yep. um, a pretty high percentage of cases uh, where the physician is found to be negligent. Okay. So uh, diving a little bit deeper, how would you say that um, admitting a patient or obtaining imaging affected the legal outcome? We actually found that admitting and obtaining neuroimaging did not really change the outcome in proportion of liability, negligence, or settlement. Uh, in regard to admission specifically, there was about, there was only 15 patients that were admitted while 45 were discharged. And mm -hmm. of the 15 who were admitted, 60% resulted in no liability. But of the uh, 45 who were discharged, 56% resulted in no liability. So there wasn't a huge difference in not finding liability if you admitted the patient. Uh, looking at the imaging, we were surprised by this. But we found that 46% of patients received neuroimaging as part of the evaluation, but there was no um, difference between the two groups in proportion of liability or negligence. Okay. And, you know, it's really interesting. I mean, um, spending a lot of time in this world, you know, it's it's easy for us to think that um, 
that there is sort of a cookbook approach that we should be able to glean from this data. But it's very interesting. You know, in each case, a lot of times uh, what makes medical sense isn't really what drives the outcome in a given case. You have no idea what the opinions or the knowledge base of the jury was. You have no idea what the experts were saying to the jury. And so it's very hard to say, you know, like you should always get imaging or you shouldn't or, you know, you should admit or you shouldn't. It's hard to, to derive those feelings from this, but it is very interesting, I think, to note whatever the trends are. Because I can sense, you know, people dealing with like people who are are emotionally very challenged by the thought of being in litigation and having been that person myself. Mm -hmm. um, It's very easy to hear these statistics and then be frightened into thinking like I should or should not be doing something in each one of these cases. And I, I don't get the sense that that's what you're trying to tell us. No, I think it's really one of the main takeaways is that each patient is comes with a unique presentation and getting imaging in every single case doesn't mean you're going to have a less chance of liability. So you shouldn't practice really in fear of that liability. Yeah, I think just practicing with the notion of what the patient is in front of you and what you feel like medically the right thing to do is, is always the defensible thing to do. Yeah. Um, okay, so sum this up for us. What do you take away from your results? So I think there are really five main takeaways. The first being is that the common site for these types of patients to present and uh, liability to arise from is in the emergency department. So it really is important for the emergency physician to consider a neurological emergency when a patient presents with dizziness. And I think that the second one is that the median age being 45 really shows that emergency clinicians should be assessing serious central pathology, even in these younger patients. Mm-hmm. Uh, third, I think that the, the duration of symptoms prior to the alleged malpractice being greater than 24 hours for a lot of the cases just highlights the potential of the underappreciated risk arising from patients with less acute presentations. And um, the fourth one that I think is really important is that the allegations of the missed or delayed diagnosis in our in our cases were often accompanied by the fact that or complaints that physicians fail to order neurology consultations or neuroimaging, and that's the complaints. But that really highlights the unclear role of the specialist consultation and neuroimaging in evaluating diseasedness patients. And mm-hmm. so, like I said earlier, this would be the last takeaway is that the neuroimaging does not impact the proportion of liability. And so practicing that way isn't the most effective if that's the only reason you're ordering the neuroimaging. Okay. I think that's really, those are five really good takeaways. Uh, where do you think we should go next with this data? And um, do, are, do you have any other studies in the works? We don't currently have any other studies um, related to this, but I think the data really shows us the diverse and unique clinical presentation and outcomes related to patients that present with dizziness. And it really illustrates what's behind those almost shocking statistics that we discussed at the beginning. And we think that this data shows and underscores the need to better standardize care in the ED for complaints of dizziness, but further work needs to be done to better characterize the clinical decision-making scheme and the best practice. So we're not ordering neuroimaging or physical exam and specialty consultations without knowing the role of it. And so we can minimize the current clinical variability and uncertainty faced by emergency physicians because they're really um, bearing the brunt of the legal risks associated with these care. 
Well, thank you so much, uh, Summer, for your work in this area and this paper. Again, I found it very, very interesting and um, wait to see what comes next from you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to this month's AEM Early Access. Subscribe to this podcast on iTunes at AEM Early Access, all one word. Don't forget to read the full text of this article, available open access from the Academic Emergency Medicine Journal for a limited time. Today's music is by Scott Holmes. I'm Gita Pensa, and we'll see you next time.